James 5, 7 through 20. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and latter rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, blessed who remain, or the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Elijah was a man with nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Thank you, Tim. As we uh, go to prayer together, uh, I'll just mention a couple of things uh, that I would ask you to join me in praying about. Uh, first of all, this afternoon, uh, there will be a memorial service for Larry Moss. And so, uh, of course, would invite you to be here if you are able. Uh, but if not, as you think of it, please be praying for the Moss family uh, today uh, during that time. Uh, also wanted to mention a uh, just very serious need in our church family. Uh, many of you know uh, the Allen family, Aaron and Krista, and um, I uh, would have them come forward, but I, I don't want to single them out and embarrass them, but uh, their son Samuel, who is just a little toddler, cutest thing, uh, is going to need heart surgery. It's a pretty serious surgery and that's going to take place toward the end of the month. And so uh, for those of you who are close to Aaron and Krista, please uh, do what you can to be a blessing to them. Uh, if you don't know them, then I would just ask you to join us all in praying for them, uh, as this, uh, I'm sure, is just weighing very heavily on them. So uh, let's go ahead and go to prayer before we begin to examine this passage. Father in heaven, you are the God of all comfort. This is what you've said in your word. And so many of us have found that to be true in our darkest hours. And so, Father, I pray that that is what would be known today uh, at the memorial service for Larry, 
that you would uh, comfort Bobby and the rest of the family and, and all of Larry's uh, close friends and relatives, and uh, that they would find comfort not in just feeling good, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for Aaron and Krista, and especially for little Samuel. Uh, I pray that you would protect his body in between now and when he goes in for surgery, and I pray that you would uh, give peace to both of them as they await this time and uh, just rely on you and, and, and walk through a situation that lies almost completely outside of their control. Uh, Father, we know that your healing power is unlimited, and so we ask for you to show mercy on this family. Father, we pray as well for our brothers and sisters who are suffering right now in Afghanistan and ask that you would pour out your comforting mercies in their hearts. Um, Father, we can't even put into words what we know they need. And so we rely on the promise in your word that your spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And so, Spirit, we, we pray for your intercession for these brothers and sisters as they face fearful circumstances, unimaginable suffering, and uncertainty about the future. And Lord, I pray that your testimony would spread like wildfire in that place and that they would overcome and conquer by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Lord, this morning I pray that you would show us from your word how to finish the race, how not to give up. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today's sermon is titled, How to Run a Marathon. Uh, this is a topic I find more and more interesting. Some of you are thinking, Jake, we already know about that. We sit through your sermons every week. I remember hearing someone say that there's something about men in their late 30s or early 40s where they just feel the need to be able to get from one place to 26.2 miles away on foot and then documented on social media. There's just something weird about that stage of life. I don't know why that is, but it kind of makes sense to me. However, I have never run a marathon before. One of these days, maybe that'll happen, uh, but it's never happened for me. By the way, how can you tell whether someone's run a marathon before in their life? Do you know how? Don't worry, they'll tell you, right? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> just a joke. You've probably guessed, I think, uh, that we're not going to be talking about how to carb load or which shoes to buy or how to replenish your electrolytes mid-run or anything like that today. If you want to literally know how to run a marathon, you're going to have to ask someone besides me. No, obviously we're talking about something different. We're talking about living life as followers of Christ. You might point out to someone that following Jesus, like, like parenting or uh, like finishing a degree or doing just about anything worthwhile is not a sprint. It's a marathon. It requires endurance. Following Christ entails perseverance and pace and a healthy rhythm between rest and work, between gathering and scattering, between feeding your soul and pouring your soul out in service. 
If you've been a Christian for any length of time, the tragic truth is that you probably know a lot of people who started the race so well and then veered off to the side mid-run. They were sprinting ahead in the Christian life on fire for God, zealous to reach souls for Christ, but unaware of the need to persevere. And after just a few short years, they putter out and fall away. This is sometimes a mark of, of religious hypocrisy. I mean, let's face it. You aren't really a real believer, and that becomes true, or that becomes evident later on in life. But in so many cases, it's just a mark of immaturity, and what is needed for all of us is spiritual growth and the ability to persevere. Uh, when my kids were very young, every once in a while, I would take them on a, a run with me or a jog, and uh, they would do what every child does. They would, we'd get out there on the road, and they would sprint out way ahead of me, like looking back, like, Dad, what in the world? Why are you going so slow? But then about a quarter mile in, they would say, Dad, can we walk for a minute? I'm tired. Can you carry me? Why did they do that? Well, because they were little kids, and that's what little children do. That's what they always do. It's either, Dad, come on, catch up, or Dad, I'm tired. Can you carry me? And the same thing happens when you become a Christian. One minute you're burning with zeal, the next moment you're questioning everything. And as you grow in your identity as a follower of Jesus, it's absolutely critical that you learn how to keep running, even when life is difficult, even when you question the things you thought were for sure, even when you need to endure. Well, in this final passage of the book of James, we're going to come full circle back to a topic that first appeared at the beginning of chapter 1. Do you remember what James said in chapter 1? He said, count it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Uh, now we're back to the same issue. You're going to face difficulty you're going to face tedium, you're going to grow weary from time to time in your walk with Jesus, but you must persevere to the end. You must finish your race. And today, we're going to talk about how. James, in this passage, gives us four really simple instructions about how to finish the race, how to run that marathon. Here they are. I'll give them to you, and then we'll work through them one by one. Here they are. Be patient. Keep your word. Pray for each other. Go after the strays. If we at Indian Creek are going to stick with it, if we're going to make it to the finish line, then we've got to do these four things. We've got to be patient. We've got to keep our word. We need to pray for each other. And we need to go after the strays. So let's look at these one by one. First of all, be patient. Be patient. James says in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Now, before we can even begin to understand what it means to be patient in this situation, we need to kind of tap the brakes for a second because implicit in this instruction is a very important assumption that James brings to the passage that you may not share with him. Notice what he assumes. He is assuming that the next big thing for followers of Jesus is the coming of the Lord. Did you catch that? He is assuming that the arrival of Jesus is what all of us are waiting for. Now, I don't, think it's a safe, I don't think it's safe to say that that's something that's true of every single Christian at every single moment of, of, of time. 
In the church where I grew up, I can honestly say that for all their faults, people generally shared this assumption. They were eager for the coming of the Lord. They were looking for the day when they would meet Jesus. They were, not, they, they were looking for the next big thing, but for them, that wasn't the, the iPhone or the new job or getting married or making more money or a new gaming system or anything like that. For them, it was the arrival of Jesus Christ to take them with him into glory. They were eager for it to happen. They talked about it all the time. They lived and they sang and they gave and they worked as if any day Jesus could come back. They wanted to be ready. And then as I grew up, I noticed that many Christians began to transition from kind of looking for and patiently waiting for the coming of the Lord to sort of arguing and and conversing with each other about the timeline and the details of what was going to take place in the moments leading up to that. You know, like what? What do you guys think Russia is going to do? Or maybe the, the monsters in the book of Revelation are actually attack helicopters of some kind. I, I think that's true. Or, or when's the rapture going to happen in reference to the tribulation? Is it going to be at the, the beginning or at the, in the middle? Or is it going to be toward the end or after it's over? Or is there really not a tribulation at all? And not that any of those questions are irrelevant. But it got to the point... Where I came, when I came up through school, Bible college, my professors were telling us not to get bogged down with these debates because there's so much that we didn't know. There's so many good people that, that took different sides of the debates. And, and I think a lot of us took that to mean that we really shouldn't think about the coming of the Lord at all. We didn't talk about it very often at all. And in our day and age, that's so easy because even as bad as life can be, there always seems to be something else to look forward to, something else to work you know, a, a, more money, a better job, kids, grandkids, a nicer house. And, and people are living longer lives and they're staying healthier for, for healthy for longer periods of time. And the advancements of medicine are so remarkable that we can have greater confidence that we're going to be able to live more comfortably than any other previous generation. And, and even Christians have gotten to the point where we just do not think the way that James thinks. We do not look for the next big thing that James is describing here in chapter 5. We want to be able to fall back on the reality that Christ is returning, but in the meantime, we want to have fun now. So let me just say this. We need to be reminded of this. Folks, we are living in the last days. God has come in the flesh... He died in place of sinners. He took the curse of the law in his own body. He lay in the tomb, and then he rose again from the dead. I mean, that is all stuff that goes along with the last days and the end of the world. He ascended into heaven, and from cover to cover, the New Testament beckons us to remember that he is coming soon. Paul says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. He says, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will ever be with the Lord. At that time, John says, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. He says, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. 
He said, I saw heaven opened and, and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he's called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the almighty on his robe and on his thighs he has a name written king of kings and lord of lords and Jesus himself promises behold I am coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done so let the one who hears say come And let all who are thirsty come to him and and slake your thirst at the fountain of living waters because as sure as every one of us is sitting here, Jesus is coming and it could happen at any time. James assumes you know this. He assumes that you long to see your Savior face to face. He assumes that this reality is baked into the way that you live. The way that you wake up, the way you lie down, the way you arrange your schedule, the way you talk to your children, the way you spend your money. So let me just ask you a question. Does the coming of the Lord have anything to do with the way that you're living today? Does the coming of the Lord have anything to do with the way that you're living today? You want to know how to run a marathon? You want to know how to keep going in the race? You have to actually put one foot in front of the other and you have to direct your steps toward the finish line. You can't win the race if you're going the opposite direction. Sometimes I think it's like some of us started the race well, but about mile two, we notice a donut shop off to the side on the street, and we kind of take a left and say, oh, man, I'm going to go there. That's no way to run. See, the point of your life is to enter in the kind of the fellowship that Jesus will, 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 that, that will have with Jesus and will last for all of eternity and to bring as many people with us as we can. And if you are going to live a life of endurance, then you cannot allow all the other lesser goals of life to take priority over that goal. See, the next, thing, the, the next big thing is the coming of the Lord, but that leaves us with a bit of a problem because from our perspective, Jesus is waiting a really long time to come back. And so James tells us, be patient in the meantime. Be patient specifically with Christ's absence. Uh, Be patient with the fact that Christ is not physically present with us today. Why is he not present with us? Well, for one thing, Christ told his disciples in the end of the Gospel of John, it's better that I go away. Why? So that he wouldn't just be Jesus in a room with a bunch of guys, but Jesus in the hearts of millions of believers throughout the world. So the fact that Jesus went away and sent his spirit means that we can actually commune directly with him and with all the believers in the world. So this is a good situation. It's through his patience and his mercy and his kindness that he's waiting. Not only that, but uh, Jesus' delay creates in us an opportunity to grow in faith. We have to live by faith because we can't live with our physical eyesight. Peter calls this more precious than gold. So there's a reason why Jesus is waiting. Be patient with Christ's absence. Secondly, be patient with each other. Uh, Notice verse 9. Do not grumble against one another. 
Think about it, kids. The longer the car ride, the greater the likelihood. Tell me whether it's true or not. The longer the car ride, the greater the likelihood that you're going to get into a fight with your brother or sister, right? And the longer Christ tarries, the greater the likelihood we're going to get into a conflict with our brother or sister in Christ. James says, be patient. You want to know why you're not making very much progress in the marathon? Why you aren't resilient when trials come? Maybe it's because every time somebody says something that sticks in your crawl, you turn around and you run the other way. And I would just ask you to look back at your life and your relationships with other believers. How long, ask yourself, how long do they typically last? Like, have there, has there ever been a time, even once, when you had a relational difficulty with your brother or sister in, in Christ and you actually worked through that offense with the person who caused, it, who caused the offense. You see, Minner Wells, we all know this, it's a small town. A lot of Christians have a lot of history with each other. I've noticed this. A lot of people saying, oh, him? Stay away from that guy. That's, he's the reason I left that community group. He's the reason I left that church. And they've never actually talked to him. <laughs> and our neighbors can see that that's going on. Our kids can see that taking place. You want to know why your kids aren't in the race? It may be because you've been grumbling about all the other people running with you in the race. Philosopher Eric Hoffer has said that it is easier to love humanity as a whole than it is to love your next door neighbor. I've found that many times Christians fall prey to this very thing. We're part of the universal church. We, we love the church. We love God's people in general. But then we can't get along with the people in our local church. We can listen to a sermon by a pastor ministering on the other side of the country, but we don't want to hear it from the guy sitting next to us on the couch in the community group. Why is that? See, what James teaches and what we find throughout the entire New Testament is that if you want to finish the race, if you want to complete the marathon that God is calling you to run, then it's imperative that you do so with your local church family. It's not don't grumble about all the Christians out there everywhere. It's don't grumble about one another. If you're going to run the marathon, you must be patient with Christ's absence and patient with one another. Thirdly, though, you must be patient in your trials. James cites two examples of patient endurance in verses 10 and 11. Uh, one is the prophets who ministered faithfully even when they were unpopular, even when they were imprisoned, even to the point of death. Jesus mentions these men in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, blessed are you when men revile you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. This is the same thing that happened to the prophets. The other example James mentions is the suffering of Job. And I just think this example is really, really important, really instructive. Because what James is not asking us to do when he says to be patient is to sort of sit back in, in a sense of passive reserve and just take whatever comes and not respond to anything and just be completely serene in all circumstances. Is that what Job did? No, Job took it to the Lord. 
He, he, he invites you to bring your pain to him in lamentation. And, and by the way, sometimes those emotions, you don't really know what to do with them. And so you might be tempted to say, well, when I figure out what I'm feeling right now, when I figure out what I'm going through right now, then I'll bring it to the Lord once I've cleaned it all up. And, and God says, no, you just take it to me and I'll be the one to help you clean it up. This is exactly what happened in Job's case. Did Job need to be corrected? Yes. But who corrected him? The Lord. And he received it. He cried out to the Lord, and when the Lord comforted him, he received it. When the Lord corrected him, he received it. But the point is, he laid hold of the Lord. So be patient, brothers. Uh, Secondly, though, uh, James says in verse 12, keep your word. Keep your word. Above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. Uh, You'll notice if you are familiar with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, that this is something directly pulled from that sermon. Basically, what Jesus has said and what James is saying is keep your word. Like, do what you say that you're going to do. You don't have to swear by anything. If you say you're going to do something, just do it. Let your yes be yes. You say, wait a second, what does that have to do with the rest of the passage? And I admit, at first, it seems kind of like a random thing to say, but the more I thought about it, the more I realized how important this is for us as a church in pursuing Christ together until the end. I mean, think about this. Can you think of anything more disheartening than when you trust your brother in Christ to row with you through the storms of life, and you're rowing, and you are pulling with all your might, and you look over, and he was supposed to be rowing with you, and he is gone. Can you think of anything more encouraging than knowing that your brother is keeping his commitment to the Lord, even though the tides of circumstance have turned against him? I have to say, from the perspective of a pastor, uh, you want to take the wind out of my sails, the easiest way to do that is to make a commitment to Christ and then completely abandon it. I mean, that is just a punch to the gut for any pastor. And I know it happens, and I know I'm not supposed to let other people steal my joy. And yet, it's tough to take. See, it helps us finish when people keep their word. When we don't keep our word, we make it hard for our brothers and sisters in Christ to stick with it. Yes, your commitments matter. When you say to someone, you can trust me. I'll walk with you through this temptation. I'll pray with you as you fight this sin. And then you abandon that relationship. That's tough. And what James is saying is let your yes be yes and your no be no. Keep your word. Keep your commitment. Folks, if you're a member of Indian Creek, uh, there, there was a time when you started with us. Let's be real. There's going to be a time when when that time is over. And that's okay. Either because you went to heaven or because the Lord's led you somewhere else. And, and we don't, that's not a problem at all. But if God is calling, if God's calling you to another ministry, then you'd better go. But for as long as God calls you to be here, be here. Be committed to your church. Be trustworthy. Keep your word. Psalm 15 says that the man who fears the Lord is a man who swears to his hurt and doesn't change. He, he, he's someone who has a healthy relationship with the Lord and the spiritual tenacity to keep his word even when it's hard to do so. 
You want to know how to run a marathon, the marathon of the Christian life. Be patient. Keep your word. Thirdly, though, James says, pray for one another. Pray for one another. Uh, In verses 13 through 18, uh, James walks through a variety of circumstances that uh, call for different types of responses. And as I look out across this room and and think about the people in the room and what you all are going through, it seems to me that there's representation of all these different circumstances just in this room today. Uh, Are you suffering? The, The word in verse 13 refers to a difficulties of various kinds. You lost your job. You're grieving a loved one. You've been betrayed by a close friend. Bring it to the Lord. Pray. Are are you cheerful? Have life circumstances smiled on you? Bring it to the Lord. Remember that this is his gift to you. Sing praises to him. Are you sick? Go to God's people. Go to the elders of the church and together bring it to the Lord. Uh, enlist your church family to bring it to the Lord. Call the others of the church. Ask them to pray over you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you sinned? Go to your brothers. Confess your sin and ask them to pray for you and bring it to the Lord. See, the point is that communicating with God in prayer and praise is actually possible for the believer and that he listens to us and that this is his ordained means of bringing about blessing and change in our lives. So think about what this passage actually prescribes and what it doesn't. The implication here, let's just focus on the the issue of somebody uh, who's sick. Uh, The implication here in, in verses 13 and following is that this sick person has a very serious, desperate situation. And you might expect James to say something like, if you're sick, keep in mind this is ancient times, if you're sick, find a faith healer. Find someone who has the spiritual gift of healings. Find somebody who is like an expert at calling down divine power into your situation and and providing healing for, for you. But James doesn't say to do that. He doesn't say go call the spiritual experts. He says call the elders of the church. Just the elders. The the normal shepherds of God's flock. By the way, this implies that you're not just a free agent Christian floating around from church to church, that you're part of a church family, that you actually have shepherds, more than one of them, in your local church, and you can call them and they know who you are and they can pray for you. He doesn't say find an expert. He says call your elders, call your spiritual shepherds, and the elders are supposed to anoint the sick person in the name of the Lord Jesus. You say, what's up? With, I know I'm moving fast through this, but you say, what's up with the oil? What does that mean? Uh, it's very simple. really represents the reality that the elders don't have the power to heal. The Lord alone has the power to heal. I mean, that's really what we're saying when we anoint someone with oil. And I have to say that the opportunities that I have had to, to join with the other elders of this church and pray over a person who is sick, have been literally some of the most humbling experiences of my life because as we are kneeling before the Lord in prayer, we all know that we are nothing in and of ourselves. That that this person is desperate and that there is only one person in the entire universe who can do anything about it, and that's the Lord. And the fact that God would give the elders of a local church the authority to call on his name and to beseech on the behalf of of another believer 
For God to show mercy is just one of the most humbling experiences I've ever had. By the way, if you've ever been that person who has called for the elders of the church to pray over you for healing, you know it's one of the most humbling experiences for you as well. It requires humility before the Lord. See, what God has designed is for people in need to gather with their church family and verbalize their dependence on the Lord for every breath they take. And and we do that. We lift up our brother or sister. We say, God, we depend on you. Jesus, we depend on you. You say, Jake, does it work? And if you're asking, does it work? You're really misunderstanding the nature of the relationship here. This is a relational activity. It doesn't work. God works. That's the point. We don't tell him what to do. We don't say the tricky magic words and then God says, oh, you said the right thing. Here you go. We are calling out to our Heavenly Father, our good Father, and God's mercy in every single instance proves enough. Sometimes the healing is immediate. Many, many times the healing is immediate. Sometimes, like in the case of the Apostle Paul, the Lord tells us, stay faithful. I'm going to ask you to keep walking through this difficulty. Sometimes the answer is, you know what? It's time to come home. But the Lord shows his people that he is sufficient, that he's good, and he sustains us through prayer while we wait for the coming of the Lord. And here's the point. If you are going to run this race, if you're going to be a marathon runner, if you're going to have endurance, if you're going to persevere, You are not designed to do this alone. You must participate in a praying community. You must be part of a loving family. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Sing praises with one another. God's plan is not for you to go it alone. The New Testament is so abundantly clear that it is not me and God. It's we and God. That's what it's designed to be. You're you're made to be a brick in the building, not a boulder in the field. You're made to be a member of the body, not an amputated limb. So here's my question for you. Are you moving toward the body of Christ, the local church, or are you moving further and further away? By the way, it's not just that you need a church family. God has given you spiritual gifts for the building up of the body, and the church may need you. I realize you might see problems in the church, and you wish they weren't there, but have you ever stopped to think that God might be equipping you to meet that need? How many people know that you will pray for them, that you will listen carefully and compassionately to them as they describe their fight against sin, that you will speak of them before the throne of grace. See, you want to you run a marathon, you want to keep in the race, you want to get to the finish line, you've got to be patient, you've got to keep your word, you've got to pray for one another. And then finally, from verses 19 and 20, go after the strays. Go after the strays. My brothers, James says, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Simon Sheprot was about to cross the finish line in a high-stakes 10-kilometer race in Nigeria in 2019. But then he noticed one of his competitors, Kenneth Kipkamoy, stumbling 
on the road. Without skipping a beat, Sheprat stopped, picked up his fellow runner, and actually carried him across the finish line, missing his chance for a first-place finish and a significant financial reward. Here's what he said. My dad told me one day, when you're walking and you meet a sick person on the road, help him. Do not leave him. And of course, there were a few similar examples in the recent Tokyo Olympics of this kind of self-sacrifice. It's what makes these races worth watching. And James is saying that's the kind of thing that the church needs to be about. You are running your race and you see your fellow runner stumbling. He's running down the wrong path. Go after him. Go after the strays. Because a person who brings back a sinner from his wandering will save a soul from death. Have you reached the point in your Christian life where you felt like you were just a hair's breadth away from stumbling, where your strength was gone, where you had no strength left, where it didn't seem worthwhile, where your mind was confused and your spirit was parched and a brother or sister in Christ came up alongside of you and grabbed you by the shoulder and said, come on, let's do this together. I know I've had that experience many times. I'm so thankful God put individuals in my pathway who held me up during a time of weakness and wandering. See, our our culture, folks, is very individualistic. We're we're very, we've reached a point where it's, it's impolite even to move from casual conversation to spiritual conversation. Have you noticed that to be the case? We feel awkward or even offended when someone breaks through our, our veil of spiritual privacy to ask us how things are going in our relationship with the Lord, that's the point we've reached as a culture. But we cannot allow that cultural current to, to infect the church. See, we're all running this race together, and if we're going to be able to get to the finish line, if we're going to be able to get to the point where God, Christ looks at us and says, well done, then we have got to cultivate a culture in which we go after the strays, where we, where we hold up our brothers or sisters in Christ as they are running, and we run together. So don't be offended if a brother or sister in Christ asks you where, you, where you've been, <laughs> or, or how's it going in your spiritual walk with the Lord. They're not out to get you. They're not out to condemn you. They want to hold you up. See, at the end of the day, what's important is whether or not we finish the race. And notice how James, he frames this as a matter of life and death. And folks, it is. Because believers believe. Believers in Jesus actually continue in faith. They stick with it. And so God has set up this support for us so that we might not just start out well, but actually finish the marathon. So be patient, keep your word, pray for one another, go after the strays. Would you pray with me now? Father, in your wisdom and in your grace, you've allowed for each one of us to to face difficulties and trials. that have the potential to make us stronger and to grow in endurance. But sometimes it it, it seems as though they're about to beat us down or steer us away from the path that you've called us to run. 
And so we want to thank you for providing means, providing a church family, providing your word, and the confidence that we have in knowing that Christ is coming to help us to continue to run the race. So Lord, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.